Welcome back once again to the Richard Roper Podcast. I am Richard Roper. want to remind you once again, the Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly to compete in today's online business environment. You need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. As a pool attendant, I would get hit on. But if I would have known that accepting this woman's invitation to go back to her hotel room would have led to a scandal involving the president of the largest Christian university in the world and the president of the United States, I would have walked away and just enjoyed my private life. The Falwells are the Southern Gatsby's. They're wealthy, powerful. With a Christian's communications empire. And they're sloppy. They have a public image, but behind the scenes, they're freaks. Okay, that's just a little snippet of the madness that you'll discover in, God forbid, the sex scandal that brought down a dynasty. The director is Billy Corbin, who has done some of my favorite documentaries of the last 20 years, the Cocaine Cowboys documentaries, the U, 537 votes, which you have to check out. And now... I want to bring Billy in, uh, God forbid, and that's not what I'm saying, God forbid I bring you in right now, Billy. I'm saying that's the name of it, the sex scandal that brought down a dynasty. You know, this is uh, the story of Jerry Falwell Jr., his wife Becky, and of course the pool boy. And you've you've done a lot of documentaries that have gotten a lot of buzz. Uh, you know, the Cocaine Cowboys, uh, and recently folks check out the Kings of Miami, which was a six-part documentary series. And these characters out of the South Florida area are beyond anything you can see in fiction. But I don't know if I've ever seen such buzz in recent years for a documentary as we have for this. People have been talking about this for months. I heard the televangelicals, televangel, what are they called? The evangelicals and the televangelists. Uh, they don't want their flock to see it, Billy. Why, why wouldn't they want their flock to see this film? I don't know if that's true because I, I think they like the story of a of a fallen angel, if you will. You know, uh, it, it, gives hmm. them, it gives them the opportunity for redemption. You know, to, to, to say the devil got a hold of me. And uh, Richard, we live in times when you can turn on the TV right now and see Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker preaching again on isn't television. That so, isn't I that amazing? I didn't think I'd ever see that day when they'd be, when they'd be back from the proverbial dead. I mean, that, but that's part of that story is, or that arc is it's a one of, of forgiveness, you know? And so who knows? I mean, maybe uh, Jerry and Becky will have a, uh, a third act. Well, you you know you make a great point. I hadn't thought of it that way. There, you know, there's the there's the built-in redemption arc. You know, it's got they. It's like you have those chits in your pocket if you're one of these <laughs> hypocritical bastards. I mean, you mentioned Jim Baker, and you and I talked a little bit last week, and I told you this. You know, I I grew up in a in a Catholic family, and I always tell people, I actually, you know, my mom and dad, even though they're you know obviously from a different generation, were were truly truly believed what you know the faith is supposed to be about you know jesus you know a cool ass hippie who believed in tolerance and forgiveness and and that seems to have been lost through the through the centuries uh and i actually had a, you know a good experience with you know, i had great nuns great we had a priest who was a legend billy because he could do a mass in 25 minutes which we just loved, you know <laughs> but but my, my parents my dad would actually make us watch these uh evangel evangelical guys these televangelists on these shows the ptl praise the lord we called sure. it past the loot network and just to see the hypocrisy and jim baker you know he went up the river because he was conning people right and and he's back and he's selling survival kits because the end of days are coming i mean so i guess it is built in right if you're one of these preachers or you know self-proclaimed 
uh, men or women of God that you can always say, well, I, I, I went down the wrong path, but I, I, I've seen the error of my ways. Odd fun fact about me that, that I don't know that I've ever said publicly before, but I was similarly situated, only it was voluntary. I would watch TBN, the Trinity <laughs> Broadcast Network, and watch uh, Jan and Matt Crouch. Um, and I was at uh, – Paul, I think it was Crouch, was the husband. Matt was the son. Um, Matt went on to, to produce, like, some Christian movies, like um, – Michael York was in one of them. And I was like, oh, wow. they always show the trailer and they'd be raising money for them. I was fascinated by this subculture. I found it very compelling. I, first of all, I was, I found it bizarre that Jesus needed all this money. I'm like, what does Jesus <laughs> need all this money for? They're, you know, they keep, and I also thought as a subculture, it was peculiar because I always, I remember saying to friends at the time, like, can you imagine if, if, if Jewish, if Jews had a cable network where they asked for money all day long, like what people would, would think of that or what they would say about well we know what kanye would say about it um but like um yeah. you know like I'm, I'm like this is not a thing we can do why like why why is it that this works though in in christianity i was just really fascinated uh by the subculture and so um someday i hope to actually make a doc that, that dives deeper into the world of televangelism and maybe tells the the ptl story and so because i i'm i find it riveting um this one takes on a uh god forbid on Hulu, it takes on a, uh, the story of a different evangelical dynasty. Some would argue the first family of e evangelicalism, and in fact, probably America's first televangelist, Jerry Falwell Sr., and then his son, of course, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., um, who, who took over uh, the presidency at Liberty University, the largest Christian university in the world. His uh, wife, the first lady of liberty, as she was known, uh, <laughs> Becky, and um, their adventures in Miami Beach with a one-time pool attendant at the legendary uh, Fountain Blue Hotel. Well, you mentioned the, the dad, and you do a great job at the beginning of the documentary, kind of giving us this brief history lesson for people who don't know that you know the dad, Jerry Falwell Sr. As you mentioned, I mean, a pioneer. It was him and Billy Graham and a few others, but Jerry Falwell, you know, and he. You know, the truth is he he found this niche where he was basically preaching what against gay marriage, against women's rights, you know, this this hardcore intolerant thing. And it struck a nerve. Right. I mean, that's that's how he kind of made made his bones. Yeah, he was out chasing outrage and culture wars that that's how we spent most of the, the 60s into the 70s. But to start, evangelicals were very much outside of. Uh, you know, they distanced themselves really since the Scopes monkey trial. They distanced themselves from politics. They distanced themselves, even though they had won that round, it was an embarrassment. You know, there was a lot of negative publicity around it. And they kind of almost sort of disappeared into themselves. They were very kind of small government conservatives. They didn't want the government to impede in their religion. And they didn't want to, you know, uh, have anything to do with, with politics. And all of that changed with Jerry Falwell Sr. Um, he wanted the power and the power he wanted to convert the power of the pulpit not only for profit and it was very profitable but for power as well and and he knew that politics was the only way uh to do that and they were facing in the 1970s the you know the feminist movement the world was becoming america was becoming more progressive there was a there was a burgeoning out lgbtq plus 
community. There was, uh, you know, divorces were on the rise. Pornography was on the rise. <laughs> the People versus Larry Flint tells this story very well with, uh, you know, with, with Jerry Falwell yeah. uh, Sr. and Larry Flint. And so he decided to kind of what Randall Balmer, uh, who we interview in, in God Forbid, who is a um, evangelical pastor, a theologian, a religious historian, he talks about how Sr. started to market test some of these issues uh, to see how we could drum up outrage and galvanize evangelicals to the polling places to become the voting block that they are today. And nothing was really sticking. He was getting a lot of publicity, a lot of saber rattling, you know, but uh, you know, a lot of loud sermons from his bully pulpit, but nothing was really moving the needle. And um, it wasn't until about 1978 where the abortion issue, which had been championed by Catholics, not evangelicals, but Catholics, since the Roe v. Wade decision five years earlier, and they saw how it swung a bunch of key U.S. Senate races, hmm. uh, where where Democrats who were heavily favored lost to anti-choice Republicans, and in in a very cynical way, because evangelicals had mostly, almost entirely, stayed out of the debate. Uh, about about Roe v. Wade because there was internal dissension. A great many evangelicals believed that this was none of the government's business. You know, mm. consistent with their conservative small government ideology, that this decision was between a a woman, her doctor, her family, and her faith, and and the government should not be involved um, any more than they wanted the government to tax uh, churches. And so, but they realized. Racism didn't sell because they were they were anti desegregation. Um, they you know homophobia didn't work. Uh, misogyny didn't work. Anti um, <laughs> anti people wanted to get divorced. They wanted to watch pornography. But they what they realized working was yelling baby killer, and that mm. they could they could outrage people and galvanize power. And it wasn't until five years after Roe v. Wade that Jerry Falwell Sr. did his first anti-abortion sermon. So this did not come from a place of, you know, pro-life or, or any kind of, of biblical teachings. This came from a very cynical grab for power and profit. And man, did it work. And of course, uh, and you do a great job uh, toward the end of the documentary of, you know, tying things in with you know, the state of the world today. And we're seeing the same thing happen right now because we're seeing a lot of senators, congresspersons, all kinds of politicians who for 20 or 30 years, never said a word either way, really, about Roe v. Wade. And then all of a sudden, because they again, they looked at the numbers and they looked at what's happening with the Supreme Court, and then all of a sudden, they're staunch anti-abortionists and they're running on that and they're out there, you know, proclaiming that they always have been pro-life and all of this. And you're like, well, you never mentioned it once. And now all of a sudden at 65, this is, the you know, the major issue in your life. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, well, it's even, even more, even more transparently, distressing is the idea that they would want to put women in jail for having abortions, whereas Herschel Walker, for financing abortions, they want to put him in the U.S. Senate. So I, I, I think this is and this yeah. speaks to this speaks to me, the crucial themes of God forbid, which is that, you know, this idea that our leadership, not just in in politics, but the people we consider leaders in our in our communities and in our country, they rule from the philosophy, do as I say, not as I do. And that the law and the rules do not apply the same to everyone. Uh, and, and that I think is, is a frightening and dangerous prospect. 
So let, that brings us to Junior, to, to Jerry Falwell Jr. So the old man finally passes away. So he, he takes the mantle. Uh, but from the start, it doesn't seem like he's really all that concerned about whatever the, the spirituality is, but the business side of things, right? That's, that's his thing. Yeah, his little brother, Jonathan, was the pastor. He was the religious leader, and he took over the Thomas Road Baptist Church from, from Senior when Senior died in 2007. And whereas Jerry Jr., who by training and trade was a real estate attorney and helped turn the failing, very much failing and uh, on the verge of bankruptcy, Liberty University into a multi-billion dollar endowed juggernaut and a real estate empire in and around Lynchburg, Virginia. He was the guy that took over the business side of the business and not the religious side of the business. And, but he, Jerry Jr. loved power, and profit of the pulpit. I mean, he loved it. And he loved the captive audience that convocation three times a week at Liberty provided him in the Liberty Flames basketball arena on campus with 10,000 seats and compulsory attendance. And that just became his, that, that's how he preached, you know, conservative values and, and, and not even small government, but anti-government values. And he, and eventually became a, an essential stop for particularly Republican candidates for office, particularly for president. Ted Cruz announced his presidential campaign in 2015 uh, there for the 2016 cycle. And, um, and eventually it became basically just like Newsmax or OAN or Fox News. It, mm -hmm. In fact, Jerry Jr. refers to Liberty University as the Fox News of colleges. And so it became a, a place where everyone in not only the Trump administration, but any any characters in the Trump telenovela, you know, in Trump world <laughs> would come there and, and have this captive audience to be able to um, proselytize to. The Fox News of college. I don't know how Harvard never grabbed that. You know, they had that model in front of them. All the time. <laughs> Billy, we're going to take a quick break here. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about, God forbid, the sex scandal that brought down a dynasty. Here's Rokan to talk about Portillo's. I think it is time to tell you about Portillo's. Okay. The greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're going to have anywhere on the planet Earth, right down to the poppy seed bun. You're going to enjoy it so much because it's one of the million great ingredients that Portillo's uses, whether it's the Italian beef or the sausage or the legendary chocolate cake. That's just all the beginning. Mm -hmm. The fries, the salads, the chicken telling you, if you have Portillo's... The burger. It, the burger's great. Yes. And, and you can get beer at the Portillo's, too, if you go nice. into the store. Nice. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you have a Portillo's near you and you've not eaten at a Portillo's before, let's say you live in California, Arizona, or Florida, where it's relatively new, you want to check it out. Take the Roe and Roper endorsement here. It's one of the finest experiences you're going to have ever in that kind of a food environment like fast casual you know it's not exactly fast food you can sit down it's nicer but it's super great portillos.com p-o-r-t-i-l-l-o-s.com ask your friends in chicago about it portillos.com if they wanted to make me disappear they can do it 
The Falwells are predators. Anytime you have sex and then makes religion, that's some nasty, nasty shit. It was an atomic scandal. Jerry Falwell writes, I was not involved. I know the truth about them, and the whole world is going to find out. That is, of course, God forbid, the sex scandal that brought down a dynasty. It's on Hulu as we speak. We're talking to the director of the film, Billy Corbin. So, Billy, we, we talked about Jerry Jr. Uh, and Becky. And let's now go back. And as you mentioned, even as all this stuff is going on up in it's Lynchburg, right, where Liberty University is? Yes. They're spending a lot of time in Miami, though. <laughs> like they're, they're, right? No, I, mean, I, I mean, wouldn't you if you had a private jet from work that would that – would, yeah you know fire you down whenever you felt like it you and your fa family and your adult children and their significant others to to party in south beach nightclubs and at poolside at the fountain blue hotel which is like a vegas like kind of pool and party scene i mean i, I certainly would i mean that's the funny thing about all this is that <laughs> you know the deep dive we did on their lifestyle i i found the Falwells to be a whole lot of fun uh, I would love to party with the uh, with the Paul Wills. They were they were fun. They were gen the generous. Like they pick up the tab. Like let's let's go. Yeah, man, they're you know? they're like, like uh, they're like a couple characters in that White Lotus series. You know, it's like you know, <laughs> living the life. So um, so the fountain, what what's it called? The the Fountain Blue, the hotel, right? Uh, fountain Blue, yeah, yeah, legendary yeah. Miami Beach hotel. This was the stomping ground of of Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack uh, back in the day. Um, very famously, you know, Miami Beach was the Jim Crow South. People forget that about Miami. Oh, wow. And yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, people of color were not allowed after dark. So we were a sundown town. Uh, and, and so um, you had to literally go to the police station, get fingerprints, get like an ID if you worked on the beach. And so if you were coming to or from work and you got pulled over by a cop, you better have that that ID and say, no, wow. I'm, I'm, we're, wow. I'm leaving the barrier island and we're going back to, you know, to Overtown or Liberty City. And so famously, you know, you had people like Muhammad Ali who could fight at the Miami Beach Convention Center, but couldn't sleep in Miami Beach. You had people wow. like Nat King Cole uh, who could perform in the nightclubs and hotels in Miami Beach, but not stay in the hotels. And Sammy Davis Jr., who would come and perform with Frank Sinatra, with Dean Martin, was not allowed to stay. And Frank Sinatra finally, the story has it, legend goes, put his foot down and says, mm -hmm. if Sammy can't stay here, we're not performing here wow. and that's what helped kind of shake shake shit loose and and begin the change and the and the desegregation of uh of miami beach uh was thanks to that and so this hotel has an amazing history if you've ever seen actually i mean there's um uh the bellboy jerry lewis uh takes place there the bodyguard with kevin costner and, and whitney houston has a sequence there the mm. specialist one of my favorite like shitty made in miami movies <laughs> of the 90s with yeah. Sharon Stone and, and Sylvester Stallone has That's a right. hilarious, hilarious sequence that takes place at the Fountain Blue. And uh, Tony Rome, um, one of my favorite uh, made in Miami yeah. movies, Frank Sinatra, uh, takes place uh, there. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm burying the lead here. Goldfinger. <laughs> yeah, um, there you go. You have the, the opening shot into Miami with that beautiful John Barry uh, score and that you know that banner plane welcome to Miami Beach it comes around somebody dives off the high diving board that whole sequence with the uh with the golden girl uh takes place uh was shot uh in wow. around Miami yeah Miami Beach the Fountain Blue Hotel and and uh South Florida and so um this was it's it's a very different place now it's like I said it's much more modern and Vegasy and um you know there's a saying 
that I'm very fond of that um, uh, Los Angeles is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. It's, <laughs> it's always yeah. been a sunny place for shady people. And the Falwells certainly availed themselves of living their best life down here uh, in, in Miami. And, and they did. But what was so compelling about it is that not only did uh, Becky Falwell, who Giancarlo Granda, the, the former pool boy, mm. describes as a cougar, not only was she eyeing him at the pool of the Fountain Blue where he was working, she was snapping pictures of him, which he later learned she was texting upstairs to her husband. And she propositions him and says, you know, come up to my room later, you know, when you get off work. And he's like, hell yeah, I'm a 20-year-old guy. And this sounds like some, you know, it's a day that ends in Y in Miami. So let's do this, right? <laughs> um, you know, this is how we, this is what we do on a Tuesday, Richard. And so- um, so there's one thing uh, my husband likes to watch, and thus begins uh, the way Giancarlo tells it, a seven-year huckled threesome in which he would be intimate with Becky while Jerry would watch from the corner and sometimes more than watch from the corner, uh, would record, would you know do other things with his free hand. And um, it may very well have impacted the outcome of the last two presidential races so uh, it's this it's just only in miami butterfly effect kind of a kind of a story you know that, there's that, this that we th there's this double life going on of course so jerry falwell jr's wielding all this political power that you know the candidates and eventually trump you know come a calling for the endorsement and, and just go back for a little bit too because giancarlo granda um and you know uh, his sister's in the documentary as well and says, you know, he's going to be called the pool boy the rest of his life. It was this one gig. But I mean, you know, come on, it's irresistible. But uh, you have some you actually have I think, you you know, you treat him in the documentary. First of all, there's, you know, extensive interviews with him with respect. You know, he's because and, he, and he's got some perspective himself. He's like, look, I'm 20 years old and he's not the most sophisticated guy in the world, even for 20, even for, you know, especially for living in that area. And, you know, you know, he says, he goes, how many 20 year olds would have said no in that situation? Well, some would have, but a lot of would have got caught up. But it then becomes this thing where he can't really get out of it. Right. I mean, he feels like he's beholden to them because they're not only taking him in sexually, but also kind of oddly, almost as mentors, which is very bizarre considering the sexual uh, component. But then they become business partners. Yeah, it's it just gets weirder. It really does. Every time I hear it out loud, I'm like, yeah, it really is every bit as, as odd and, and irreverent as, as we thought it was going into this thing. Uh, yeah, he you know, he doesn't consider himself, himself a victim at the beginning. He didn't even really consider them particularly hypocritical because he didn't know them as religious leaders. In fact, he didn't even know who the hell they were at the start. He just saw them as this fun party couple, you know, yes. down, in, uh, down in Miami. And Becky always used to tell him, uh, you're perfect. You're perfect. As in like he fit the perfect profile of what she was looking for, what they were looking for to bring into their marriage, which was this, um, you know, young, conservative, uh, Republican, Catholic school kid and who was uh, to her a Cuban Ken doll. You know, uh, yeah, and, and they even they even kind of bring him into the family. There's photos of him with the, their children. Like, uh, I guess the kids just thought he was like Giancarlo attended both of their son's weddings. Jeez. He was a, he was their guest at the wedding. He even tells a story in the documentary about how at one of the weddings, um, the Falwells were staying in the presidential suite. Uh, and this is their son's wedding. Uh, and he would go to the presidential suite and have sex with Becky, according to Giancarlo, at 
at their son's wedding. And there's a lot more, you know, peculiar stories that didn't even make the cut, you know, where Giancarlo started dating. Because uh, Becky was like his first, uh, she was the first woman outside of his family that he said, I love you back to. She said, I love you to him about three weeks after meeting. And he said, I love you back. And, you know, there was a, there was a, there was some emotional, perhaps manipulation going on here that, that, that went deep. And then, as you said, they said to him, well, let's, we'd like to create a business opportunity for you to get you started in your life. And here he is less than a year after meeting them at his job as a pool boy at the Fountain Blue. He is now a partner with the Falwells in a $4.65 million commercial property in South Beach. They buy a building with a liquor store, an Italian restaurant, a youth hostel upstairs that Politico described as a, a gay-friendly flop house, whatever <laughs> that means. Um, I think they were attempting to highlight the hypocrisy of the Falwells, who run this mm, Christian institution mm. with a very strict, almost footloose-esque you know, code of conduct, no dancing, no cohabitating, no sex outside of the sanctity of marriage, no same-sex relationships, no profanity, no drinking alcohol, uh, no no listening to uh, music with profane lyrics, uh, basically a, a no hip hop rule is, is really what that was. Yeah. Um, and, and there's stories of uh, students, uh, their version of Netflix and chill, or I think I, I have to call it Hulu and chill on yeah. this uh, project. Um, but th their version of that is a female student will be in her dorm room on the first floor of the building, on the couch, watching a movie, and her boyfriend will be outside the window in a lawn chair, Richard watching like they'll open the window so we can hear and that's how they watch because they're not allowed to you know sit together on a, on a on a couch if they're not if they're not married so meanwhile the Falwells are down in miami like crossing the commandments off a checklist yeah like, all, what, all, all in one night quite yeah. you know quite frequently <laughs> you know what billy here's what we're gonna do I, i'm gonna i'm gonna leave it there because i don't want to give everything else away i want people to watch this documentary for themselves because this is just this is just the the appetizer for the main course of what happens in, God forbid, the sex scandal that brought down the dynasty. You might think you know this story, folks, but trust me, there are a variety of other characters and some twists and turns. And it, it, as usual, Billy, you do a brilliant job of being journalistically sound, but also making it entertaining as hell. And I, I really appreciate that. We've always called our genre for the last 20 years or so pop docs. And so we, we, we felt an obligation to kind of uh, straddle the line between journalism and entertainment. And of course, our commitment is to the truth and to fact checking and corroborating everything. But also we have an obligation to our audience to make it an aesthetically uh, engaging piece of work. And so we always try to approach our documentaries as not just documentaries, but a genre films, you know, what, what, you know, Cocaine Cowboys to us was a gangster movie, you know, it was always like, it wasn't like, uh, uh, what would, what would a documentarian do with this story? It's what would Martin Scorsese do, you know, yeah. with this, with Absolutely. this story? And so, yeah. And so, we, you know, we try to keep, we try to keep it moving and we try to keep the audience on board. And I think it's fascinating that you and I kind of talked about it almost in reverse from how it's presented yeah. in the movie. Cause yeah. you know, uh, Todd Shulman, our executive producer who works at Hyperobject with Adam McKay, also our executive producer, he likens our work to a Trojan horse. Mm. And he says that, you know, we kind of tempt the audience with the candy and then all of a sudden we feed them broccoli, you know, <laughs> when they, when they least expect it, you know, and, and that's kind of what happens here is you're, you're here for the micro story or many audience, the audience will be tuning in for the micro story of this, you know, of, of this cuckumentary, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 
And, and, and then all of a sudden you realize like, oh, there's this bigger macro picture here that I, that you weren't necessarily aware of, but uh, say, you know, it's, it's very similar with cocaine cowboys, yep. uh, where it's like, okay, I'm going to watch this gangster movie. And then you walk away going like, oh, I, now I understand how Miami was built on this foundation of narco dollars, you know, and how it transformed yeah. this modern American city. And so, um, you know, that's what we always try to look at when we're, when we're trying to, um, uh, trying to tell, you know, a compelling story. Well, you have succeeded in spectacular fashion, my friend. Billy Corbin, it's called, God forbid, the sex scandal that brought down a dynasty. Thanks so much for making the time, my friend. Thank you for having me anytime, Richard.